0: welcome to episode 125 of the Let's Talk Apple podcast. I'm your host Bart Bushots and this is the show for January 2024. Wow, what a January. We have oh so much news to talk about this month. It is well, it's shocking. I've never had as much work to get show notes together. I've never ended up demoting big stories to just being like a little footnote like I have this time. So without any more faffing about, let us get stuck straight in with some updates and follow-up. We have discussed a few times throughout 2023 that Apple is not getting to their own 5G silicon very quickly. Um, they're not getting their own modems together perhaps as quickly as they'd like. Some in the press think it's a catastrophe. It's probably, you know, not. But at the same time, it's clearly not going quite as smoothly as they'd like, and Apple don't really like Qualcomm. And yet, they have extended their deal with Qualcomm until 2027. We talked a lot last month about Beeper Mini. um, Where we last left it, the game of cat and mouse had been ended. um, But what happened after we recorded is that people who were using... Their Macs to keep the last version of Beeper Mini alive were being blocked from the iMessage network, and now they seem to be being let back on to the iMessage network, or to the iMessage network slowly, so maybe that was a one-month block or something like that. Either way, that seems to be that story sort of finally winding down. We also talked in December about Apple Savings Card getting an interest rate bump. Well, that happened again and again. So on January 5th, uh, the annual percentage rate went to 4.25% for Apple Cash and uh, sorry, from 4.25 to 4.35. And then on January 27th, it went all the way up to 4.5. So good for those of you in the US who can avail of such things. Then what I would have assumed, had we not had the months of news we had, I would have assumed that our big story would have been the continuing saga of Apple v Massimo and the ban of a pretty major product category for Apple from a major market for Apple. In other words, the ban on the import of the Series 9 and Ultra 2 Apple Watches from the United States. And there certainly was a lot of detailed movement with, you know, lots of toing and froing. But at the end of the day, given how much other news we have, let's just leave it at the simple outcome: they're back on sale. They were rebanned and then they got unbanned again, uh, and the price Apple had to pay for that was to remove the Blood Oxygen app from the watches being imported to the United States. It's a software change, which means that if they manage to win the case on appeal or whatever, they should be able to pop that feature right back in. Uh, But for now, if you're in the United States and you're getting a new Series 9 or Ultra 2 from Apple, no Blood Oxygen monitor for you, which is a pity... Because news also broke this month that that feature actually saved a person's life while on a flight at 14,000 feet. So, you know, it's not a useless feature. It is a pity to see things as they are. And just as we came to recording time a day or two ago, Apple made it clear they would not be... Licensing Massimo's patent, so they're going to continue to fight this through the courts. So for now this feature is missing from the United States and Apple are just gonna keep on fighting it. Regulatory rundown, well most of the regulatory stuff has made it into a main story this month, but one other little thing just to hit on here. Um th- as I say, the Digital Markets Act is gonna be one of our main stories later, but it's sort of brother, sister, sibling is the Digital Services Act, the DSA. And the DSA is already in effect, and it's not. it doesn't affect Apple as much as it affects a lot of other companies. But nonetheless, the EU has begun to do its part for that law, and as part of its part of that law, it is sending questionnaires to the large tech companies asking questions like, how are you safeguarding children? How are you protecting uh, elections from uh, abuse and so forth? Because all of that is something that the companies are responsible for doing under the Digital Services Act. So this is kind of the first step towards any sort of action, is first the commission will ask the companies, hey, explain what you're doing. Then the commission will evaluate how what they are doing lines up with their responsibilities under the law, and then they enter into a negotiated settlement. And then if all that fails, it comes to litigation. So this is, you know, step one of many. Nonetheless, 30-something companies got letters saying, hey, how are you guys protecting kids and elections and stuff? So we shall, you know, that will rumble on. Uh, and we will touch base with it again when there's more to say. Again, legal latest. I've already covered the Massimo and we get to talk about Epic in the main stories. So, really, I just have one story here to say that another long running case has ended. Loop disease was what we ended up calling a problem with iPhone 7 and iPhone 7 Plus. I think it was to do with this, you know, our contact coming loose because the case was a little bit bendy. Anyway, there was a class action lawsuit in the United States. It has finally ended. Apple have agreed to a settlement. If you were the owner in the United States of an iPhone 7, an iPhone 7 Plus, uh, particularly if you paid for a repair, then you are probably due a few hundred dollars, actually. Uh, if you didn't pay for a repair, you could be due $50. So the range of possible payouts is 50 is at the low end or 349 at the high end. And there's different rules basically for what needs to have happened to you um in order to qualify for one or the other, but somewhere in that range, if you had one of those phones, you are probably entitled to. Um so maybe worth having a go. Apple HR and acquisition news. Um It's very unusual to hear about layoffs in Apple, but Apple TV Plus have laid off eight staffers in their children's programming section, which I wasn't expecting that as a news item. That that sort of caught my eyes being unusual. Uh, What also caught my eyes being a little bit unusual was that there was talk of Apple's reorganization efforts within the Siri team leading to layoffs. So it sounded to me like, why would Apple be laying people off from AI just right at this moment in time? But that's not quite what's happening. So they had an office in San Diego and they had another office in Texas that were kind of doing the same thing. And, the San Diego office has been closed and the staff are being told if you'd like to keep your job off to Texas with you and we'll give you a little bit of money for the inconvenience or you can take this redundancy package and a lot of people who like living in San Diego don't fancy living in Texas and so it would appear Apple are going to lose a good chunk of staff over this but it's not quite layoffs in the traditional sense. Um. Uh, potentially somewhat bigger loss, the um, you know the the upper echelons of Apple management continue to move around and at the moment most of it is exits rather than entries. This, this goes through phases, um, there's times in month after month I talk about new people joining Apple and now I seem to be talking month after month about people leaving Apple. I wouldn't necessarily panic just yet but it is interesting that at the moment the flow is out not in. Uh, so Siri Casey is a long time Apple financial executive and she is off to become the chief financial officer at Sonos. Obviously just being an executive versus being the CFO, big promotion, credit, you know, congratulations to her and I hope it goes well for her over at Sonos. As a Sonos customer, I actually do hope it goes well for her at Sonos and I hope Sonos continues to do well. Um, Probably less good news. Well, that wasn't really good news either. Anyway, more significantly, perhaps, um, long time Apple engineer, 20 years, pretty long time. Um, DJ Novotny is leaving Apple to join Rivian. And he was one of Apple's VPs of engineering he was apparently instrumental in getting Project Titan off the ground, for as off the ground as that project ever seems to have gotten. And he's off to Rivian, who appeared to be doing a much better job of actually making electric vehicles than Apple is, so I can kind of see why he might be attracted to move to Rivian. Um, Probably not good. Project Titan is losing more of its champions. Anyway, that is that. And then... Probably the biggest change is actually on Apple's board. Um, with probably the most famous person on Apple's boards, you well, know, I'll, I'll go with that. Al Gore is leaving. Now, apparently, it's because his he literally his term was up, uh, and so is James Bell, who I'll be honest, I'd never heard of, but they're both leaving the board. Joining the board, then we have Wanda Austin, um, who. It improves the gender balance of the board. Um, There was very little of of any sort of meat on the announcement of her appointment to the board, so it all seemed a bit ho-hum. I don't think it's all that exciting, but anyway, the board has lost two members, gained one member, and the gender balance has been addressed a little bit. Um, And then finally, uh, Tim Cook has chosen to give himself a pay cut. Sort of. So, Tim's pay drops to 63 million for 2023 is the headline from Apple Insider. But what's kind of hiding in there is that Tim's base salary remained unchanged at 3 million. What changed was how many stock options Tim took, and he apparently requested the change in line with Apple's performance for the year. So, it wasn't the world's best year for Apple, as we'll come to shortly in the main stories. It wasn't a terrible year, but it wasn't great. So, less money than the year before, but, you know, 60 million stock options on top of 3 million base salary. Not bad going. Not bad going. Moving on to Apple services and original content highlights. Um, Apple Fitness Plus has got some new workouts and some new meditations to kick off the year, you know, capitalize on those uh, New Year's resolutions. Um, A little bit too late for the season in which we traditionally all party, Apple Music has gotten collaborative playlists, which are advertised as a way to enhance music at parties. I guess they're well in time for summer barbecues. Uh, Meanwhile, Apple Music Classical is. Slowly continuing to expand, it is moving to Japan, China, Korea, Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan. Over in Apple TV Plus land, we all need to get used to hearing more about Lionel Messi because Major League Soccer returns, which means MLS season pass is back on the Apple TV app for those of you who live in a country where you can pay for it and where you would like to pay for it. And of course, award season is in full swing. So I'm not really doing nominations in general. I'm kind of sticking to just the actual awards because otherwise this section of the show would just be ridiculously long. So we have a Michael J. Fox movie, or rather, still, colon, a Michael J. Fox movie has won four Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. And I think that is utterly, utterly deserved. I would recommend... Watching that movie, if you haven't already, and you're an Apple TV Plus subscriber, it really, like, he was, you know, Michael J. Fox himself was extremely involved in it. His story is extremely well told. Absolutely captivating documentary. Really well done. Apple also took four Creative Arts Emmys. Um, They took two for Ted Lasso, including one for Ed Sheeran, for, uh, he was involved with some of the music for that series. And one for Five Days at Memorial and one for Blackbird. Uh, Blackbird also got a f- full-on Emmy, um, the only one Apple got, for Paul Walter Hauser, uh, who won for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Limited or Anthology Series or Movie. Um, yeah, people were a bit disappointed that Apple didn't do as well at the Emmys this year. And that sort of continued uh, with the Golden Globes, where Apple also didn't do great. Just one award, just one Golden Globe. Now it went to a very worthy recipient, Lily Gladstone, for Best Performance by a Female Actor, Motion Picture or Drama for Kill of the Flare Moon. Um, and then the Critics' Choice Awards didn't go great either. Um, the way Apple Insider phrased their headline is, Apple TV Plus Falls Flat at Critics' Choice Awards. That's probably not, it's snarky, but I'm not sure it's unwarranted. 16 nominations, 1 win. Best Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for Billy Crudup in The Morning Show. Certainly earned, but, you know, 1 out of 16, not great. Things did pick up a bit near the end of the month. Um, Killers of the Flower Moon took Best Picture at the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Awards. That will be the Association for the Advancement of Retired Persons in the United States of America, for my fellow international peeps. And then Apple got 13 Academy Award nominations. This is one of those places where I'm making an exception to the rule and not talking about nominations, because it's kind of the Oscars, right? Big enough. So 13 Oscar nominations largely for Killers of the Flower Moon, getting 10 nominations. Uh, but that does leave three for Napoleon. Um, so we shall see how that goes with the actual Oscars ceremony. But 13 nominations is not bad. In fact, it's the best Apple have ever done. And when Apple won, one of the things that Killers of the Flower Moon won, I guess it must have been the Emmy, um, of the Golden Globe, anyway. Apple decided, to, <coughs> excuse me, to re-release. No, it was when it was nominated for so many Academy Awards. Apple re-released it onto streaming. Um, or was that Napoleon? Eh. Anyway, the key point is, Killers of the Flower Moon was the top of Real Goods' top ten for streaming on, uh I think, Real Good Do American streaming. So you know, Killers of the Flower Moon topped Real Goods' top ten. That's not bad going. Let us move on to our main stories. We have four of them. First off, we're going to quickly have a look at Apple's Q1 2024 earnings call. Then we're going to jump on to what I have chosen to christen cantankerous compliance, which is actually three stories in one, depending on how you count it. So I thought the biggest thing we'd be talking about this month would be the US Supreme Court's decision not to decide Apple v. Epic. Uh, Then Apple released some changes worldwide for developers. And then Apple released some massive changes for European developers to come into compliance with the Digital Markets Act when it comes into force in March. And wow, was that a big story. Then to give ourselves a breather, we're going to celebrate the Mac turning 40 for main story number three. And we're going to finish with a look into the future with the launch of the Vision Pro in the United States of America. Main story number one, Q1 2024 earnings call. Yes, I am aware there have not yet been three months of 2024. So maybe Tim Cook has a time machine and he knows how well Apple are going to do in the next six weeks. No, that's not how it works. And not six weeks either, it would be 10 weeks. Anyway, what actually happens is Apple number their quarters weird. So Q1 is actually the holiday quarter. So Q1 2024 is the big, big, big quarter that really was 2023's holiday season. So you would, of course, expect Apple to do quite well. And if you zoom all the way out, doesn't look too bad. Apple's second biggest quarter ever which, you know, we're used to Apple being, you know, Apple's best, yada, 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 yada. Second biggest, though, not to be sneezed at. $120 billion in revenue for the quarter. Not bad either. And probably the thing that made investors the most relieved is for the first time, basically in a year, it's year over year
1: Growth instead of shrinking.
0: But if you scratch the surface, it's not quite all roses. So, my favorite way to look at these earnings is not to get too bogged down in the specific numbers, but rather to go over to Six Colors, where they do the charts. And the great thing with the Six Colors charts is you get to see all of these things in context. So you get to see, you know, how this quarter compares to other similar quarters, etc. You know, the year ago and the change and stuff. And it's just it's always good to have a look. And so, the first thing I sort of want to draw your attention to when you scroll through the the graphs, as I say, they're linked in the show notes at lessstalk.e is for absolutely years and years and years now. The pie chart showing where Apple's revenue comes from has been this perfect half blue pie chart where the iPhone is half of Apple's income. That's not true anymore. The iPhone's now up to 58% and that, that's the kind of thing that I, a lot of um, investors get worried about because, that you know, Apple are in danger of becoming a one trick pony here with the iPhone now being more than half. Services, 19%, wearables, 10%, Mac, 7%, iPad, 6%. So the iPad and the Mac are almost the same size as each other, which is interesting. Uh, but services is bigger than wearables, Mac, and iPad put together. But services is a third, no, not a third. Oh, no, yes, a third uh, of iPhone. So, you know, anyway, that's interesting that that pie chart has changed so dramatically. Apple's revenue, you know, well, year over year change in revenue, shows things going in the right direction. Moving to more specific products then, the Mac managed to hold steady, which is probably a relief. It's actually a 1% growth year over year if you look really, really carefully. But the previous quarters have not been good. Minus 29, minus 31, minus 7, minus 34, plus 1%. Still, you know, flat, flat is good. The iPad did not fare so well. Um, There were zero new iPads in 2023, so one could rightfully argue that this, you know, is to be expected, but anyway, down 25%. Now, that's following on from being down 10 the quarter before, down 20 the quarter before, and down 13 the quarter before. Before that, massive jump at up 30%. Um, You know, Apple also did... extremely well during the pandemic for iPad with a whopping 79% growth in one of the quarters. It was Q2 of 2021 and that fell down from 3146 and 41% growth. So during the pandemic, Apple did really well with the iPad and iPads last a long time. So arguably... They picked up a whole bunch of new customers, those customers are still on their first iPad and therefore you might expect that in a few years' time these numbers are going to pick up again as that batch of people replace their iPads. We shall see. For now, in the year where Apple made no new iPads, they also didn't sell very many iPads over Christmas. You know, I guess not surprising, but so be it. iPhone revenue. Zooming out looks great, up 6%. Not bad but the problem is in the detail on the iphone china didn't do so good we'll talk about that more later um services revenue well i mean it's not quite a straight line of up but it's up 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 up, 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 up. and it's just continued a slow and steady like if you you can very 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 easily fit a straight trend line to what is going on with services revenue it's just Slowly, but steadily, up and to the right. If you're wondering how slowly and steadily, up 11%. The wearables, home and accessories also fell down 11%. Now, we know now that from next quarter on, this segment will include Apple Vision Pro, because that's where Apple will be reporting the Vision Pro, because it's a wearable. You stick it on your face. So it be interesting to see what happens there, but interesting to see wearables is down. Profit, um, profit isn't doing too badly. Uh, $33.9 billion of profit. Not bad. Not bad at all. Uh, year over year revenue chains up 2%. Gross margins, Pretty level as a whole and 45.9, which is kind of impressive. And then when you start to break it down by region, you see that the Americas are yeah, flattish. EMEA, Europe and Middle East and Africa, I think, up a little. Rest of Asia Pacific, pretty flat, Japan, pretty flat, and China down a little. Uh, And when you flip that So when you take that from, you know, fourth quarter average to year over year growth, the little changes at the end of the graph become substantially more dramatic with EMEA's uptick being very noticeable uh, and China's downtick being very noticeable and when you dive into the numbers, how down is that China ticket It's down 13%. In the last quarter it was down 2% and that had people a little bit worried. They'd managed to get up 8% in Q3, but they were down before. Minus 3, then minus 7. Small 6% growth. Like it it's, you know. I can see why investors are a little bit worried about that China number sort of hiding amidst the mostly good news. Basically, all the rest of the world made up for China, allowing Apple to sneak in with positive growth and moving forward. So I think no one is saying, oh, wow, this is amazing. And no one is saying, oh, my God, the sky is falling. I think everyone sort of is saying, holding pattern earnings call. Let us see how this develops. If that China trend is a trend, that's probably not good. If that China trend is a blip rather than a trend, probably better. So now I should confess these earnings calls came out very close to recording time, so I haven't had time to do what I normally always do, which is check with listener Linda if I'm being even vaguely sensible. So you listeners cannot benefit from Linda's wisdom this time and I may end up having to do a correction in the next episode because maybe I'm reading this all wrong and actually I'm missing the point. So Linda, you know my email address if I've got a, made a mess of this. Fingers crossed I haven't. What's also interesting is that uh, we got a few other nuggets out of the various questions and answers and so forth. Um, one of the stories that Apple Insider noticed was that R&D spending is, for the first time in over a decade, flat-ish which is unusual. That made it be a little bit of belt tightening uh, with all of the post-pandemic contractions and things. Um, spinning to the positive, Apple were very keen to point out that they have 2.2 billion active devices, which is the most they've ever had. And if you do the math, that is a whopping one device for every four people on planet Earth. No, I have a lot more than one device. But nonetheless, that is is a shockingly big install base. And the other thing that was very, very, very obvious is that Tim Cook had a talking point. He wanted to get across and he got it across in his opening remarks and he managed to repeat it quite a few times during questions. There is absolutely no doubt that Tim Cook wanted the entire world to know that he is incredibly excited about generative AI and Apple have some announcements to make later this year. So stay tuned. I'm sure that will be a main item here on the show one of the months in 2024. Right. Main story number two. Cantankerous compliance. A lot of Apple's critics use the word malicious compliance. Probably a little bit strong. Minimalist compliance would work too. But I kind of like alliteration So I spent a little bit of time with my thesaurus and cantankerous compliance fit best because I think it sums up Apple's attitude here pretty well. The dictionary definition on the Mac dictionary for cantankerous is bad-tempered, argumentative and uncooperative. I think that's how the European Union see Apple. Bad-tempered, argumentative and uncooperative. And I also think that's how Epic see Apple of them. They may well see them as malicious. So the first piece of cantankerous compliance was when Apple announced what they would do in response to the Supreme Court of the United States declining to hear final appeals in Apple v. Epic. So Apple v. Epic started off in a California courtroom. It then got appealed to a circuit court and after that, the only place you can go is to the Supreme Court. If the And the Supreme Court don't have to take every case. I think that's something a lot of people don't understand about the Supreme Court. They have discretion on the cases they choose to take up. They basically take up a case when they think they have value to add, either because they think the lower court's got it wrong or often because... There are multiple cases from multiple lower courts that are conflict and then the Supreme Court have to sort of figure out which approach to things they want to have become the law of the land. In the case of Apple v. Epic, the court decided there was nothing for them to do. Nothing to see here, which means that once they declined to hear the case, the highest remaining decision stands, which was the circuit court's upholding of the lower court's ruling. So, that means that Apple won almost everything against Epic, except the anti-steering provisions are anti-competitive, therefore that needs to end. I think a lot of people, well, two companies in particular, assumed this would be some sort of free for all that Apple would lose the case or that, you know, basically Apple would be forced to do this. They didn't think that that would get overturned on appeal to the Supreme Court. And I think everyone just assumed that the rule saying you can't provide a link to an outside payment source would just evaporate. That's not what happened. Shock and
1: horror. And so
0: Epic are extremely cranky about this, given that they literally lost the court case. That doesn't surprise me. Also cranky about this are Spotify over in Europe. And Spotify seemed genuinely shocked at how Apple chose to respond to this outcome. And that perplexes me, because Spotify is a European company. Uh, Spotify has been watching how Apple has dealt with various purchase-related um, lawsuits. And we have previous on this. It was in the Netherlands. It was a case narrowly defined to dating apps within the Netherlands. And what Apple decided on, which did meet the Dutch court's requirements in the end, is an entitlement developers could apply for in the App Store, which allowed them to link out with giant big shouty warning text, they would continue to pay Apple a commission of basically 3% less than the normal commission, and then those 3% they saved they could use to do their own payment processing. That didn't actually appease anyone then apart from the court and made nobody happy, really, apart from the court. And I have always assumed that should Apple lose on anti-steering, that they would copy and paste what they did in the Netherlands to whichever jurisdiction they lost in, and see if the kite flies. See if the courts in that country would uphold that very, very, very limited, minimalist, Contankerous compliance. That's pretty much exactly what they did. So if you are selling your app in the United States, you can now apply for an entitlement in the App Store called a StoreKit External Purchase Link Entitlement. You need to agree to a whole bunch of terms and stuff. And you still have to pay Apple either 27% or 12%, depending on whether you fall under the traditional 30 or 15% commission, depending on whether or not you make more than a million a year. Or whether it's a, um, actually I don't think this, this wouldn't apply to in-app purchases in a mind. And you need to show your books to Apple if Apple don't believe you. So you need to make regular returns to Apple and Apple have the right to audit your books if they think you're lying.
1: Uh, Obviously. Obviously.
0: Epic. Spectacularly cranky. Spotify thought it was Outrageous. Um, And as a whole, the developer community was not impressed. The other thing, of course, that happened is Epic lost almost the entire case. They basically lost on 9 out of 10 points, which means that they were going to end up having to pay Apple's legal costs. So uh, Apple decided to rub some salt in the wound and sent them a bill for $73 million. Now, technically speaking, you might assume that because the Supreme Court have said, nope, that this is the end of the road for this court case. No, it isn't, because now what's going to happen, almost certainly, uh, Epic have said that they're looking into it already, which means it's going to happen most probably. The argument is going to be made in a court that what Apple have announced does not comply with the court ruling. That was handed down in california so this is almost certain to run and run and run moving on then um apple let it be known that every developer in the world gets to benefit uh, from some loosening of the app store which is technically speaking this loosening was actually a result of the digital markets act But unlike the vast, 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 vast majority of changes Apple is making to comply with the DMA, there are two things that they're doing worldwide for all developers. The first of those I think will be extremely welcome, um, probably by companies like Microsoft and frankly it's in the benefit of, well not quite Epic, well no actually no, it's in the benefit of Epic too, any company that has a streaming gaming service is going to be happy to know that they can now get an entitlement in the App Store to allow one master app to stream games or other quote-unquote mini-apps from within that master app. And you can even charge using in-app purchases for those, you know, mini-game, the streamed games or mini-apps within the master app. Basically, the game app store that Microsoft wanted but we're told they couldn't have, they can now have if they still feel like doing the work to make it exist. Another thing that the Digital Markets Act requires of gatekeepers who run stores is that they release more information to other people selling on their stores. So, Apple run a store and they sell products in the store they run. So, that puts them in an Amazon like position. And therefore, the Digital Markets Act says that in order to stop mainly, frankly, Amazon, um, from abusing this position where they are both competitors and masters within their own store, they need to release more reports to the other vendors within their store. But that also applies to the App Store. And so there are now more report types available to developers from within the developer portal, or sorry, from within their um, the portal you use to manage your presence on the App Store, uh, App Store Connect. And, sorry, iTunes Connect, App Store Connect, either way, the portal developers use. And every developer around the world gets to benefit from these more detailed reports. On the whole, this is probably going to really help Apple with all sorts of anti-competitive or defenses against being called anti-competitive. So on the whole, this probably makes an awful lot of sense that they do this worldwide, a little bit of protection from various uh, regulatory, you know, stuff being enforced on them. And then we come to the big one. So in March, the Digital Markets Act will come into effect and all of the big tech companies who have been designated as gatekeepers are going to need to comply with that law from March. So in the lead up to Apple's big announcement, so basically Apple released a very long press release detailing the changes that are coming with iOS 17.4 that Apple are making to comply with the DMA. But before they released that giant big press release, um, they had, or well, not they, uh, Margaret Vestager, who is the EU's antitrust commissioner, or I guess she's the anti-antitrust commissioner, um, she visited Tim Cook over in Apple HQ on the 11th of January, and she tweeted about it on X, and she said that they discussed, you know, compliance and so forth. So none of us know what happened in that closed room. So we don't know whether Apple asked for guidance and whether their plans were realistic or whether it was the other way around that Apple were like, here's how, here's, you know, preemptively, this is why we think what we're about to announce complies with the law. We shall see. Either way, that meeting happened and I would have loved to be a fly on the wall in that meeting. Um, And then also Apple filed paperwork to complain that we don't run one app store, we run five totally separate app stores, therefore we don't come under the threshold for the DMA, therefore you can't regulate us at all. I don't think anyone expects Apple to win this case. But I guess Apple felt, hey, why not give it a go? What's the worst that could happen? You know, we're already going to preemptively comply because until the case is ruled on, Apple do actually have to comply. This doesn't stop them having to comply, but it might give them an out later if all goes well. But I would not hold your breath on that one. Okay, so the next thing then is we have lots and lots of detail about what Apple is going to do to comply with the different aspects of the Digital Markets Act. And I'm going to start with the easy ones and then move into the ever more complex ones. The easiest one of all. The Digital Markets Act gives European users rights to know more about how they are interacting with their gatekeepers. So we already know that developers are getting reports. Well, EU users are also... Getting more reports. So when you go into your My Privacy settings within your iCloud account, you can get extra information about your interactions with the App Store that people in the rest of the world cannot get. You can export that information and you can share that with third-party app stores. Good opinion in that. The second change, which is again not too difficult, and uh, was there has been for a long time now a lot of crankitude from European financial institutions about the fact that their apps can't use the NFC chips inside iOS devices. Well, you can now, if you meet various rules, get an entitlement to have direct access to the NFC hardware on iPhones. And Apple have also provided a mechanism by which developers can request access to other pieces of hardware that exist within the phone but are not currently available to developers. I don't know if that's just going to be a sort of a... How am I doing? Sort of an inbox, uh, or whether that's actually something that's going to have some teeth behind it. But either way, NFC is going to be available to EU financial institutions, and there is a mechanism for developers to let it be known that they wish to have access to other hardware that they currently don't have access to. Now, the next thing we have is still not too difficult to describe in the European Union browser developers will be allowed to bring along their own rendering engine. So while it is true that you can run Firefox or Edge or Chrome on iOS today, you're not really running those browsers. So a browser is kind of a game of two halves. You have the code that turns the HTML, CSS and JavaScript into a web page. And then you have all of the bits and bobs around those web pages. So how it manages and synchronizes bookmarks, the whole UI, all of that. And for years, the name given to all of the bits and bobs that go around a website was the the browser's Chrome, and Google used that as a pun to name the browser Chrome, and now the term has gotten really confusing. So basically, if you're running Firefox on your iOS device, what you're running is WebKit, which is basically Safari's brain, with Firefox's skin, and Firefox, and indeed Google and Microsoft, well, Microsoft I think to a lesser extent, but you know Microsoft use Google's rendering engine for their browser. But on iOS, they're forced to use Apple's rendering engine. They might like the convenience of having the same engine on on all platforms. Anyway, at the moment, Firefox is forced to use uh, Apple's rendering engine, and so is Chrome. This is considered anti-competitive under the DMA. uh, Safari was one of the gatekeepers. Apple tried to argue that they had not one browser, but multiple browsers. Only their own advertising material said they had the one browser everywhere, so they lost that shock and or horror. Um, So Safari is a gatekeeper, and therefore competition must be allowed. Therefore, other browser rendering engines are to be allowed onto iOS. But only in Europe. I think a lot of people had assumed that this would open up to the world. But no, only in Europe. In addition to being allowed to have custom rendering agents, which uh, people think that, that may we may see a lot less of that than we had thought because it's only in Europe. It's a lot of work to build two versions of Firefox and two versions of Chrome and two versions of Edge. You know, one that uses... There are, you know, one for all of iOS, not in Europe, that uses Apple's brain, and one for iOS in Europe that uses their own brain. Had it gone worldwide, Firefox and many others would definitely have switched over. Now I'm not so sure, but it might happen. Regardless though, whether or not browsers choose to write their own rendering engine or decide that it's easier just to keep doing what they've always been doing so they can have one browser for the whole planet... What all browsers, regardless of rendering engine, will get within Europe is that the first time a European opens Safari, either because they have bought a new phone or because they have just upgraded to iOS 17.4, they will get a browser ballot screen, like users of Internet Explorer got many years ago when Microsoft lost their antitrust case in Europe. And the list of browsers is going to be different from country to country. Um, They're going to be in a random order, so that you know, being alphabetically first doesn't give you benefit or being most popular in the app store doesn't give you benefit. It's going to be random order and users will then get to choose whether or not they make that browser, their default browser. Now, a lot of work, by the way, has gone into making all of this possible. So there is now a new type of sandbox. The browser sandbox now exists in iOS. Massive amount of APIs to allow these third party rendering agents to run safely. So Apple has done a lot of work. To keep end users safe, even as they lose a little bit of control, which is something they make a big point of in their press release. So browser ballot coming to European users, rendering engines allowed, probably not going to happen. And I've just been stalling from the really difficult part of this story. Third party app stores are coming within the European Union with more asterisks, which look like stars, than you will find in the Milky Way galaxy. I have done my best to summarise this. I have also linked in the show notes to lots of other people's summaries, because they may well do a better job of summarising this than me. So, as I understand it, and I can't even promise I understand it properly, as I understand it, developers have sort of three big picture choices. So, developers can choose to stay on the existing terms. That's the easy one to explain. If you choose to sell in Europe, you can choose not to change a darn thing. You can choose to just stay
1: put. Or you can opt into
0: an entirely different set of terms and conditions. An EU App Store contract instead of the traditional App Store contract. And that goes for Europeans selling either within Apple's App Store or within a third-party app store, or both, because there is no executivity. It's not that you must choose either you are in our store, or you are not. This is because the DMA made that illegal, by the way. So Apple are really, like, if you're wondering why Apple have all the caveats in here they have, there's pretty much a line in the Digital Markets Act to match every caveat in Apple's plan. Like, uh, one of the one of the summaries describes it as um, a, a DMA-shaped you know, uh, a shaped uh, feature set. Because really, this is the minimum Apple think they can get away with. Even that's arguable whether they can get away with all of this. But this is their first attempt. This is their first offering. And this is what they think is the absolute minimum. So this really is, the shape of this agreement with developers is the shape of what they think the DMA allows. Anyway, they're not allowed to make it exclusive. So what is an exclusive? If you opt into the new terms, then you can either only sell in the App Store, or you can sell in the App Store and a third-party store, or only in a
1: third-party store. But regardless of what you do, things change a lot. So let's
0: start with the middle ground. You decide that actually you do want new EU terms, but you're not going to sell on a third-party app store because actually you're a small company, running your own payment processing sounds like an awful pain in the backside. You would rather just keep things as they are, but you'd like to take the European terms. You can do that. And the first thing that will happen is that your app store commission will drop dramatically. The high end will go from 30% commission to 17% commission. And the low end will go from 15% commission to 10% commission, which immediately sounds fantastic. But if you choose to use Apple's payment method, you add 3% back onto those. So then it becomes 20% and 13%. Still isn't too bad, actually. But there's a sting in the tail here. So up until now, Apple have had one flat fee for the, for the traditional, we call it the traditional app store terms of service. It's one fee, 30% commission or 15% commission. And that covers effectively two things. So Apple have always said that we built this platform. We have made it possible for you, the developer, to get out all of these amazing users who love to spend money on things. So we deserve a cut because we made this platform that you are using. And that's the same argument that is used on the PlayStation, that has been used by Nintendo and Sega. Basically, the entire gaming console industry lives on this notion of if we build a platform and people come, then we get to charge a commission for people using this platform. And I have long said that iOS is an app console. And when you look at it that way, you can see the logic. So Apple's fees of Always included this concept of we built a platform, we're letting people use it, and we also process credit cards. And so, their one fee covered two distinct things. Well, Apple have now broken that apart, and for the first time in the history of the App Store, they have been spectacularly transparent about why it is they think they are due their cut. So, in Europe, the new contract n- breaks it apart into payment processing fees of three percent and. A core technology fee, which is what Apple feel they're entitled to because they built this platform. And that is, I am delighted by the honesty of calling it a core technology fee. I don't know if the core technology fee is going to survive scrutiny by the European Commission. But naming it what it actually is, is useful. So this is the first time Apple have been truly upfront where it's really obvious what it is they're charging for. Core technology fee. Fantastic. That's a flat fee. It is fifty cent per new install per user per year. Which you can use the word new out of there. So if I install Carrot Weather once in 2022, sorry, if I install Carrot Weather one time in 2022 2024 or five times in 2024, it's one time the fee is due of 50 cents. If I do it again in 2025, it's due again. So, for per user
1: per year of installs. And that also applies to free apps, which is interesting. Now,
0: if you are a registered nonprofit or a government agency or an educational institution, that fee is waived. So, you are exempt from the core technology fee. And if you're a plain old developer whose app is not an app store, more on that in a moment, then you get a respite rather than a waiver. You can have 1 million installs per user per year for free. And then you have to start paying 50 cents per user per year. Now, this means that if you are not a nonprofit, See, not a registered, now the register is important here. So if you're an open source project who is too small to have set up a charity and so forth, then you can release a free app that becomes popular and end up with a massive bill. You can end up in spectacular debt for releasing a successful
1: free app. That, now,
0: having a catastrophic success, shall we call it, where you get more than a million users per year is arguably a good problem to have. And on a paid app, it's a very good problem to have. So yay, great, of course you're due your 50 cents for to, to Apple. But having it also applied to free apps is a problem. So I think the commission has something to look at here because this these carve-outs might need to be made a little bit bigger. More people may need an exemption from the core technology fee um, so, that it is not possible to release a free app that does not monetize in another way. Because if you release a free app that monetizes in ads, then it does actually make sense to still pay the fee. But if you have a, maybe the rule is just open source apps get the waiver as well. Maybe that's the right way to go about it. Either way, I think the commission are going to focus a lot on the core technology fee. I wouldn't be surprised if more carve outs come. But as of right now, those are the carve outs. So, how will third party app stores work? Well, a third party app store will be a special kind of app within the main app store. So if you want to do a third party app, you will write your third party app store as an app. You will request the special entitlement to make your app an app store app. You will need to meet a whole bunch of criteria, one of which is getting an awful lot of press is that you need to have a line of credit of a million dollars. Yeah, that's that's very, very normal businessy stuff, you know. Prove that you're a solvent company. That's not unusual. Um, so when I hear actual people in the industry talk about this, they all wave off the million dollar credit notice. Like, that, that's just normal. Only people who don't know what they're talking about are obsessed with that. In my experience anyway. And you must pay the core technology fee every single time your app store is downloaded. No free 1 million insults per user per year for you. The apps you can distribute on that store, responsibility for them is split in two. Now, this again is transparency that I really like. So I have said for years that app review is a game of two halves. There is a technical review where you're looking for malicious software, abusive APIs, using a private APIs. And then there is content review no adult content. You know, Apple has very strict rules because they want to keep it a family-friendly place. And those are two really, really different things. But up until now, because there was only one App Store, those two functions were mushed into App Store review. They're now being separated apart, very much like they are on the Mac. So every app will need to be notarized. So this gets us very close to how things work on the Mac, where if you want an app to just run on your Mac without a pop-up Telling you that you're doing something dangerous, it should be notarized, and then it will just work. The difference, of course, is that on the Mac you can get by that warning and run an unnotarized app anyway. On iOS, there is no genuine side loading, so anyone, any headline you see saying that side loading has been on iOS is wrong. No side loading. There is no way around notarization. It is not side loading. There are third-party app stores which comply with a whole bunch of rules, including app notarization. So, that is a technical scan for malicious behavior, is app notarization. One of the things that will come out of the notarization process is a digitally signed binary that that digital signature will assure you that the app has been checked for malware by Apple, and it will include screenshots taken by Apple as part of the notarization process, and the metadata about what the app does will have been included in the app before notarization. It will have been checked by Apple to make sure it is not lying. So a calendar app needs to actually be a calendar app and so on and so forth. And that description will then get baked into the notarization, all digitally signed together. And then the app's generic description will be baked into the app itself. So, that means that when you get the app from a third party app store, the OS can pop up a message saying, here's the results of the notarization, here's what the app does, so on and so forth, here's some screenshots. So, the aspect of the app store telling you about the app is now baked into metadata within the apps. And that will always be displayed to you no matter how, no matter which app store you get the app from, which is a clever idea. So, all the apps have to be notarized. Can't use private APIs, can't break out of the sandbox. Which means that the operating system's low-level protections remain in place, including stuff like tracking app tracking transparency. That remains in place for third-party apps. Second half of the game, though, the content review that is one hundred percent the responsibility of the third party running the app store. Apple cannot even for blatant flagrantly illegal things like you know copyright infringement or whatnot they cannot block based on content now that 's not Apple being nice right? apple 's rules say they won't, but that 's not because Apple are being nice that's because the Digital Markets Act explicitly says that the responsibility for content moderation rests with the third-party store, not the gatekeeper. So Apple are not gate, are not doing content review because they can't. Not because they don't want to. But that's it, you know, it, it means that apps that are now Not impossible from a technical point of view. So an app that is technically impossible because it breaks the technical APIs will continue to be technically impossible. The sandbox will continue to prevent one app from reaching over and stealing data from another. And that is 99.9% about protecting us, the user. But it does mean that cool apps that can do things across multiple apps like, you know, Universal Text Expander or Audio Hijack, those kind of apps, they can't exist in iOS now, and they will not be able to exist in iOS in Europe after the oh, iOS 17.4 goes into effect. So that is, you know, that is basically the state of play summarized as best as I can. Um, and if you choose to stay in the app store, by the way, I, I think I said this already, but just to be clear, you can choose to stay in the app store and use a third-party payment provider. Um, The other thing is, this really is minimal compliance. And so, I've got out of my way to point out wherever Apple has done the bare minimum, but John Gruber noticed
1: something. This agreement, this updated
0: agreement, which allows third-party stores, does not cover all of Apple's stores. Obviously, it doesn't cover the Mac store, because it's irrelevant on the Mac store. It also doesn't cover... The tvOS store, the
1: watchOS store, nah, not a big deal. Or the iPad
0: store. iPadOS is not covered by any of this. This is just your iPhone. That's a subtlety I think has been lost on a lot of people. So just iPhones, just in Europe, that technology, core technology fee is there. So unless you are a big organization genuinely interested in running a major marketplace this probably doesn't make sense. A lot of developers are probably better off staying right where they are. Now, if you're a developer and you are confused by your options, you actually, Apple are providing you two resources of note. There is a fee calculator, which you can use to plug in your numbers and try to figure out what makes the most financial sense for you. Probably begrudgingly added, but added nonetheless. And you can book a 30-minute consultation with Apple's developer relations team to talk through your options with people who should, in theory, understand them very well. An interesting, oh yes, one very small but important point. Apple are not blocking any developers, regardless of which of these options they take, from using the test flight system for doing betas and stuff. So that is important. Now an interesting aspect of how the DMA works, how European laws in general work, is that the law doesn't come into effect until March, which means that the EU does not evaluate how companies are complying with the law until after the law goes into effect. So Apple have announced these plans based on their interpretation of the law, and they hope that it will be considered as such by the Commission. But they won't know that until afterwards. It's a bit like developers developing an entire big app and not knowing whether or not it's allowed until they submit it to the app store after they've done all the work. There's no pre-approval process. Likewise with the DMA, there is no pre-approval process. So this is Apple saying what they will do. And until March, the European Commission aren't even going to formally start asking the question, is this enough? When they do... The first thing is an engagement with the company before they're allowed to go to legal action. So, if they decide that this needs tweaking around the edges, then they will probably engage with Apple and it will probably be quite an amicable, uh, amicable is too strong a word, but probably not too painful process. If they decide this is outright, not just tweak around the edges, but fundamentally broken, we're probably talking about a giant big court battle here. So, this will be very interesting to watch develop and one should not assume that this is anything more than Apple's first offer for complying with the DMA. And to underline that point, uh, the Internal Markets Commissioner, Thierry Breton, said in an interview that there would be strong action if the EU finds that Apple are not in compliance.
1: So stay tuned for sure.
0: Like I say, very complicated stuff here. if you were like the shortest but best summary, in my opinion, the guys over at Tidbits did best. So there, they get top billing in the show notes at Talk. the EU forces open Apple's walled garden is the headline on the article over Tidbits. In my opinion, the best short summary. Also, linking to a good, actually, very insightful summary from Mac Stories, and also one from Apple Insider. In terms of analysis and opinion, uh, I also have. Some links to a good take from Apple Insider, a good summary over at Six Colors. John Gruber has quite a bit to say, and John Gruber actually has highlighted a couple of points no one else has. Um, So his two blog posts on the matter are well worth a look. Uh, Again, Mac Stories have a fantastic breakdown of it. A DME-shaped response was their headline, and I really like it. Um... Wall Street doesn't seem to spook by any of this. Um, so far, the only analysis I've seen is from J.P. Morgan, who basically said, eh, we don't think this to have a big impact on Apple's bottom line, probably because this is so narrowly confined that it's not likely to make an actually big difference. Most developers reacted negatively. A An interesting exception to that rule is Riley Testut, who is the developer behind something called the Alt Store, which has been using... Um, Apple's developer program has a way of sort of kind of making an alternative app store through various back, holes, uh, sorry, back doors and things. He was very positive about the changes. Um, he did an interview with Cult of Mac. You can either read it or you can watch a YouTube video of the interview. And I actually watched the video and I thought uh, while he was extremely eloquent, and he didn't seem to be nuts, he seemed to be quite sensible, and he also was quite positive, which is definitely different to most of what we've heard in response to this, which is strong criticism. Spotify had assumed that Apple would just give them everything they wanted, and so they had pre-announced that they will be making alternative payments method available once the DMA forced Apple to allow it. They were spectacularly cranky when Apple announced their details. Tim Sweeney is also spectacularly cranky. Meta is quite cranky and Microsoft is a little bit cranky. But yeah, a lot of crankiness all around. So with that, I am going to leave it there. This story is going to continue because as I say, this is Apple's first offer to the European Commission for compliance. What the Commission feel about that very much remains to be seen. Moving on then to main story number three. The Mac has turned 40. Um, I, th- I mean, that's kind of the total of the news articles. Uh, sort of the news news. The Mac is 40 years old. It continues to do really well. Now that with the M series chips, the Mac is very much just entered into a new wave of greatness. Frankly, the Mac is best it's been in years and it has Apple's full attention. It's a thriving, thriving platform, which is not bad going for a 40 year old platform. A lot of really good reporting on this uh, with people sort of describing the very interesting arc from, you know, the very first Mac to the first change to the power processors to the second change to the Intel processors to the third change to the M-series processors. A lot of amazingly weird and wonderful form factors in between the invention really of the laptop as we know it, the invention of the all-in-one computer. The Mac has just been this... The invention of the GUI, well, not the invention, the popularization of the GUI. Before the Mac, the GUI was a niche thing that existed in research labs. After the Mac, the GUI was the way we use computers. A bit like the iPhone, you know, before the iPhone, we had keyboards on phones. After the iPhone, we had giant big touchscreens. That is, you know, the Mac is a seminal product. If you're going to look at just one thing to, to celebrate the Mac's history, I would highly recommend... Uh, An event hosted at the Computer History Museum called Insanely Great, the Apple Mac at 40, which was not a panel, but three panels, all moderated by David Pogue. All thoroughly enjoyable. They had Guy Kawasaki on, so you can never go wrong when you have Guy Kawasaki and David Pogue. Um, uh, They all, yeah, lots of amazing people. I I don't want to start naming names because I'll only get them wrong, but I highly recommend watching that. It's available for free on YouTube thoroughly thoroughly enjoyable. And then I have links in the show notes to a lot of other good um takes on the early history you know, on basically different aspects of the Mac history, all well worth a read. You know, none of it's new. It's 40 years worth of history. So the really the links in the show notes are kind of the main thing and I really did want to plug the computer history museum in case you're mildly curious. I joined the Mac around about its middle age, approximately 20 years ago. It was an eMac, which is a CRT, a bigger version of the CRT iMac, made later when the actual iMacs had switched to flat panels, developed for education. It was boring white, 17-inch screen instead of the 14 inches of the smaller all-in-one iMacs. Not a bad first machine. The first one I spent my own money on was the very, very first Mac Mini. Bring your own keyboard, display and mouse, which I did, and I've never looked back since. That was Mac OS 10.3 was my first Mac OS. Main story number four. The Vision Pro has launched in the United States for $349 for the base model. I genuinely think that this is as important a moment as the launch of the Macintosh 40 years ago and as the launch of the iPhone I think there will be a world before the Mac before the Vision Pro or rather Vision OS the Vision Pro I don't think is going to last very well like the um, the 128k first Mac did not last well it's a terrible machine massively underpowered really wasn't up to the job Within a year they had replaced it with the 512k iMac. Or sorry, not iMac, 512K Macintosh. That was the first really usable Mac. Well, the Vision Pro is the first Vision OS device. It's massively compromised. Far too short battery life, far too heavy, far too big, way too expensive. But it's the start of something. And what is really obvious to me is that Vision OS is very polished for a 1.0 product. But the Vision Pro hardware is limited. It's also only available in the United States. We do know more about it now. Um, Apple released really good guided tour videos, well worth a look. And they follow that up then with Get to Know Your Vision Pro, which is more useful if you actually have one. But the uh, guided tour is sort of like an in-store session, only virtual. That's actually a really good way to feel for the device, I think. Uh, If you want a real Phelan, you're in the United States, then you can do a walk-in demo from basically today as I record this. And also there is a booking system opening up shortly, so you don't have to queue for people, uh, queue with people on the walk-in demos. In terms of practical details, so 349 is the base price, which gets you 256 gigs of storage. You can increase that if you like. There's a middle tier with 512 all the way up to a 1TB tier. And if you jump all the way up to the 1TB tier, your starting price goes from $3499 to $3899. Basically $3,900. You do get a lot of stuff in the box. You get two different headbands. Um, I guess you can alternate between them to, to have different stress points in your head at different times. We now know how the prescription lenses will work. They are cheaper than a lot of people feared. $99 for the basic sort of magnifying glassy sort of ones and $149 for the prescription ones. And we also have a lot more detail on the specific kinds of vision vision issues the Vision Pro can and can't handle. Um, We know it has 16 gigs of RAM. We know it has a screen refresh rate of 100 hertz with Bluetooth 5.3 and a few other technical details. We also know that if you break it, if you break it the worst possible way, then you can end up with a bill for $2,399, which does imply to me that maybe you should get some AppleCare on it. But if you're thinking, ooh, this must be a very fragile device, surprisingly, no. Uh, The first drop tests have made it to YouTube, and I think the pull quote is, this is actually stupidly durable. So dropping it in realistic ways, sure it scuffed the device, didn't break it, didn't damage it in any meaningful way. In order to make damage that was noticeable, i.e. breaking the outer glass screen, they needed to drop it repeatedly from ceiling height. So not just head height, not just arm's length above the head, but 10 foot up at the ceiling, as high as they could go in the room. And even then, dropping it once wasn't enough. They had to drop it a few times, and then eventually they shattered the screen. Only it was the front cover they shattered, so when they pulled off the broken glass and tried to use the device again, they found it was actually functioning perfectly normally, even in pass-through mode. So the sensors and everything were still fine. So yeah, it's actually a surprisingly robust device. However, if someone steals it, there is no Find My functionality in this device, That's a definite version 1.0 oversight. I am sure that will be resolved in future versions, but do be aware that your $3,499 or more device does not in fact have Find My Functionality. So no remote wipe, no helping you find it. There are actually quite a lot of apps and stuff to play with on day one, quite a lot of different experiences and stuff. Um, There are apparently 600 Spatial apps and games awaiting the Vision Pro. All sorts of lists of cool apps. You can explore the Starship Enterprise. We have 3D movies on Disney Plus. We have a bunch of content from Apple. If you're really boring, you can have Microsoft Office 365 apps. Um, Adobe have released not just Lightroom, like they promised, but also Adobe Fireflies. You can do generative AI in virtual reality world. But getting an awful, awful lot of headlines are Netflix and Spotify for saying and YouTube for saying they were not uh, Vision Pro apps. also being a bit like, based on the reviews, the iPad apps work really well in Vision Pro. So it actually takes effort not to have a Vision Pro app if you have an iPad app. And that's exactly what Netflix have done. They have proactively disabled the iPad app running in Vision Pro. And then they say it's because, well, it's just not worth the effort, but it's actually effort to turn it off. So I don't really buy that. That's just contankerousness. And the same goes for YouTube and Spotify. But again, these are three companies that have a bit of friction with Apple. And ironically, there is a third party YouTube YouTube viewer app available. Just wasn't released by Google. Um, and in future there will be even more stuff because Unity have added Vision's Pro support into their developer package for all their developers, so people developing games with the Unity engine will be able to go straight to Apple Vision Pro, which is cool. There's even some harder accessories on day one. Um, Belkin have a battery clip, which, given the fact that the battery life is proving to be sort of about two and a half hours-ish in real-world use, um, yeah, that that's probably something you might want. It's also an external battery, which the reviewers actually seem to like, because it means it's not on your head. If there's enough on your head without the battery being there too, seems to be the consensus. So people are actually quite happy the battery is separate. You know, over time that will all shrink and get better. There's another rather bizarre accessory, a USB-C enabled strap, which apparently allows developers to keep a permanent connection onto their Macs where they can do diagnostics and stuff from Xcode, I guess while wearing the headset. $299 worth of USB-C connected strap. Must be doing something clever. Either way, it is purely for developers. You don't get it through the App Store, you get it through the developer portal. So whatever it is, definitely help developers develop apps. I have links in the show notes to a bunch of reviews of the reviews. I figured that was the easiest thing. Um, And though I do have links to a few standalone reviews but for the most i have links to reviews of reviews meta reviews if you will the general feeling is that this this is revolutionary this does work surprisingly well for a 1.0 product the software is surprisingly robust the interaction models are surprisingly thought out basically vision os has an idea and it's a good one and it's well implemented and yes, there's still some app crashes and stuff because it's a version one product. But on the whole, the software, certainly the software philosophy and methodology are generally accepted as being very well worked out. And I get that impression from watching the various videos. And I did also watch the developer sessions. Like this is a well thought out interaction model. But the hardware is version one-y. It shows amazing promise but it's a version one product. The first Mac was highly compromised. The first iPhone was highly compromised. The first Vision Pro device, sorry, Vision OS device is highly compromised. And it's priced in such a way that you're unlikely to buy it unless you're serious about it. And in which case, you know what you're getting into. I do also have a link to John Gruber's detailed review because it is, as usual, extremely thoughtful and insightful. And also because, how can you not enjoy John Stern video? Joanna Stern's Wall Street Review video review is fantastic. Some of it is immensely practical, like cooking, being able to stick timers onto pasta pots and things. That was cool. Going skiing with something that looks like ski goggles was 100% a gimmick, but it was good fun. And all in all, the review is actually very good and insightful. Um, Joanna's also done a whole bunch of interviews and various podcasts, um, and she is fantastic to listen to, fantastic to watch. Oh yeah, I should say, the other consensus from all the reviews is that the personas, as John Gruber so dryly put it, persona non grata. They, <laughs> the personas are necessary because you can't do normal video calling with the giant big ski goggles on your face, but everyone says that they are so firmly and so deeply in the uncanny valley that every time you use them, it will be noticed, it will be commented on. You cannot subtly sneak into a meeting with a persona may get better they're flagged as beta features we shall see right that almost brings this marathon episode to an end but quickly we have some smaller stories that made the news and i think we should talk about even though we had so much on our plate Um, ios 17.3 is out and the most important thing it brings is stolen device protection this is a feature you need to enable Um, It was added by Apple in response to reporting by Joanna Stern among others um, about a wave of iPhone thefts where the uh, thieves would first somehow get your passcode either by watching you or by social engineering it out of you and then they would steal your phone and phone plus passcode allows you to change Apple ID password, allows you to disable find my and unlock the device. And as a result, ends up destroying people's entire online existence in some cases. Like your photos and all sorts of important things can just be lost. Not because they want to destroy your photos, it's because they want your phone. So, stolen device protection mode is designed to solve that problem by adding a requirement for uh, biometric authentication always for changing these settings. And when you are not in a trusted location, a forced one hour delay, which would be more than enough time for you to actually engage lost mode yourself, and lock the thief out. So I would highly recommend people turn it on. I am not alone in that. Adam Angst over tidbits also recommends turning it on. In fact, I haven't heard anyone recommend not turning it on. Um, so it is a feature Apple added to solve a very real problem. So why not accept the solution? Uh, It is also the time of year when we, the Americans, celebrate. um, I'm going to call it Black Pride, but that's wrong. Uh, Black History Month. Jesus. Black Pride. Yeah, I'm getting myself mixed up with June, which is Gay Pride, Uh, or just Pride these days. Anyway, uh, Black History Month is now. Apple have, for the last couple of years, released Apple Watch bands um, and matching watch faces. They have done so again. And the previous two years I have bought them. To show my support for the cause. But I haven't particularly liked them. This year's one is genuinely pretty with flowers and stuff. I really like this year's one. So this year I bought it again. And I actually bought it because I wanted it. Instead of because I wanted to want it. If you get what I mean. Um second from last, Shazam can now identify a song without it listening to it via sound waves. It can basically do the audio hijack style thing that only an app run by Apple can do. And it can basically snake the output internally in software without listening to it over the air. So that means that when you're wearing headphones, Shazam can still name that song. And finally, finally, Parallel's desktop, thanks to Microsoft agreeing to license it, can now run genuine Windows 11 ARM version on M3 Max in their Parallels Desktop app. That's That gets around one of the problems with the switch to M series where you couldn't run an Intel operating system anymore. So Windows 11 ARM officially supported with Microsoft's blessing in Parallels Desktop on M3 Max. Right, I'm going to draw a line under it here. This has been a long show you will find detailed and very long show notes at less-talk.ie you will find buttons there to support the show a giant big thank you to everyone who does or has ever supported the show uh, i there is a paypal button for one off donations i use those to buy one off purchases there is a patreon link to support the show on an ongoing basis I really appreciate people who do both. At the moment, the Patreon is in need of some more patrons because we are not breaking even anymore. That was the intention here was to break even and we're not breaking even anymore. That is partly due to the fact that I have changed from a per show to a per month billing model. So, you know, if you pledge $5 a month, it will be $5. If you pledge $5, it will be $5 a month because I will be releasing exactly one creation a month. Um, I used to say divide by two because I did two a month simplified now one a month but of course lots of people are now giving half as much as they used to and just to rub some salt in the wound Patreon had a whoopsie and their billing system got itself into such a big mess that the only solution was for Patreon to unsubscribe some people because they managed to get the currencies all messed up on their new stripe powered back end Actually, I can't remember if it was Stripe or not. Anyway, they changed their payment processing backend and they made a mess. Which means I've just lost subscribers who may not even know they've been lost because, again, of Patreon messing up. So I'm not happy. In fact, I'm quite cranky. So, if you're a Patreon supporter, or rather if you think you are, can you please check you actually still are? Because it's possible you're not anymore. Not because you wanted to, but because Patreon made a boo-boo. Right, my voice is starting to go. This has been an extremely long show, so I'm going to draw a line under it. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of my supporters. Let's just talk.ie. Till next time. Oh, wait, no. I've been your host, Bart Bushots. You can find me at BartB.ie. And now, until next time, happy computing.